We apologise for the poor quality during the last part of this recording of a sermon by Dr Martin Lloyd-Jones. This was due to a serious deterioration of the original master tape. Although the recording has been digitally restored, I'm afraid some distortion does remain. And we hope this doesn't spoil your enjoyment of this recording too much. The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, the second chapter, verses 8, 9, and 10. Verses 8, 9, and 10 in the second chapter of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, unto good works, which God hath before ordained, that we should walk in them. Let me read that again. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. We thus resume our study together of this second chapter of this epistle to the Ephesians. And in these three verses, we have the apostle summarizing the great argument which he has been conducting in the first seven verses of this chapter. This is really a kind of summary, bringing it all again to a focus of what he has been saying in those previous verses. And I suppose that in certain respects we are entitled to say that there is no more important doctrinal statement anywhere in the epistle. Of course, it's all packed with doctrine, as we've seen. But certainly from our own standpoint, and from a true and a clear understanding of what it is that makes us Christian, there is nothing which is more important than this particular statement. And therefore, obviously, it's important not only for a clear understanding of the truth and the position with our minds, but it's obviously equally important uh, in a practical sense. Here is a, a statement, surely, that must be determinative in all uh, evangelism. And in the same way, it must determine our entire practice of the Christian life. Because uh, you can't separate uh, belief and practice. You can't uh, separate, finally, a man's view of these things from his whole relationship to them. And therefore I say that uh, we are here face to face with one of the most crucial statements that is to be found anywhere uh, in the scripture. And uh, that is why the apostle obviously puts it in this particular form. And that is why he's already prayed in the previous chapter, as you remember, that the eyes of our understanding may be enlightened. Now, we can never repeat that too frequently. This great epistle, this perhaps the greatest of all the epistles in some senses, packed as it is with profound theology and doctrinal statements, 
nevertheless was written primarily in order to help people in a very practical and pastoral manner. In other words, we must not think of it uh, as being first and foremost uh, an attempt on the part of the Apostle to write a theological treatise. The Apostle was not a professional theologian. I don't think there ever should be such a thing. Uh, the Apostle was a preacher and an evangelist. Such a man, of course, must be a theologian. If he isn't, he can't be a true evangelist. But he, it wasn't a professional matter. The Apostle's approach is not academic, it's not theoretical. He was concerned to help these people to live the Christian life. That was why he really wrote to them. But, as I say, he knew perfectly well that no one can live this Christian life unless one, first of all, has a true understanding of what it is that makes us Christians at all. And therefore, as he writes to them, he must start with this great doctrine and then go on to its application. And uh, that is what he's doing here. And he, his prayer for them is that the eyes of their understanding might be enlightened, that they might know the hope of God's calling, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and perhaps most important of all, the exceeding greatness of his power to us with the believe. That was their trouble. They didn't realize that. And it's our trouble. Our failure to realize the exceeding greatness of the power of God in us who believe. And therefore he has gone on, you see, to unfold it and to expand it and to put it clearly before them and through them to us. He stated it in great detail. He has given us the negative description in verses 1 to 3. He has then gone on to the positive in verses 4 to 7. And having stated it in detail, he says, well, now then, it all comes to this. You notice, he starts with the word for. For, by grace, he has saved. In other words, it's a continuation. He's looking back to what he's been saying. Well, now, he says, you see, clearly, and then he puts it all once more in a manner that we should never forget. Now, this, I say, is a description of what it really means to be a Christian. And more and more am I convinced that most of our troubles in the Christian life rarely arise at that point. For if we are not right at the beginning, we'll be wrong everywhere. And it is because so many are still confused at that very first step that they're always full of problems and difficulties and questions and don't understand this and can't see that. It is because they've never been clear about the foundation. Well, here it is for us. And as I've said, there is no clearer statement of it anywhere in the scripture. Why then the confusion? Ah, the confusion often arises because people turn these great statements of the apostle into matters of controversy. And they do that because they will insist upon bringing in their philosophy, by which I mean their ideas. Instead of taking the plain statements of the apostle, they say, but I can't see this. If, if that is so, well, then I don't understand how God can be a God of love. In other words, they begin philosophizing. And of course, the moment you do that, 
you're bound to be in trouble. We either accept the scripture as our only foundation, or else we don't. Now, we may say that we do that, but then we bring in our inability to understand. Now, the moment you do that, I say, you've left the scriptures. And you are introducing your own ability, your own understanding, and your own theories and ideas. And that, of course, has constantly been the trouble. And especially, perhaps, with these three verses that we are looking at together this morning. Therefore, what I propose to do is to just put these statements before you. And ask you to listen to them and to meditate upon them. Here, I say, is the whole foundation of our position as Christians. It is here we are told exactly how we have ever become Christians if we are Christians. Well, now then, what does he say? Let me put it to you in this form. We are Christians entirely and solely as the result of God's grace. Now, surely no one can dispute that. For by grace are ye saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Now, notice the Apostle's method here. The whole statement is in three verses. And in a sense, we can take the three verses as our divisions and headings this morning. He, first of all, makes a positive statement in verse 8. He follows it with a negative in verse 9. And the purpose of the negative is to reinforce the positive. Here it is, it isn't that. It's just saying the same thing negatively. And then in the 10th verse, he seems to combine the two, the positive and the negative. Well, now let's look at this positive statement. Here is his assertion positively that we are Christians entirely and solely as the result of the grace of God. Now, let us remind ourselves once more that grace means unmerited, undeserved favor. That's the meaning of the word grace. It is an action which is entirely disinterested on the part of God. So the fundamental proposition is that salvation is entirely something that comes to us from God's side. And what is still more important is this, that it not only comes from God's side, it comes to us in spite of us. Unmerited favor. In other words, for me to put it negatively, it is not God's response to anything in us. Now, there are so many people who seem to think of it like that, that salvation is God's response to something in us. But the word grace excludes that. It is in spite of us. Now, the apostle, as you notice, has been already very concerned to say this. You notice the interesting way in which, as it were, he slipped it in, in the fifth verse, interrupted himself, broke the symmetry of his statement, was guilty of a a serious blemish from the standpoint of literary style, but he's not interested in that. Listen to him. Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, and then instead of going on to the next step, in brackets, by grace he has saved. 
Now here he is putting it a little more explicitly. Salvation is not in any sense God's response to anything in us. It is not something that is our due. It is not something that we in any sense deserve or merit. The whole essence of the apostle teaching at this point and everywhere in all the New Testament is this. That we have no sort or kind of right whatsoever to salvation. That the whole glory of salvation is that though we deserve nothing but punishment and hell and banishment out of the sight of God to all eternity, instead of that, God of his own love and grace and wondrous mercy has granted us this salvation. Now that is the entire meaning of this term, grace. I surely needn't stay with this this morning. We've been dealing with it in the previous seven verses. What is the point of those verses? Isn't it just to show us that very thing negatively and positively? What's the point of that horrible description of men by nature as the result of sin in the first three verses? If it is not just to show that man as he is in sin deserves nothing but retribution. He is a child of wrath by nature. And not only by nature but by conduct by his behavior, by his whole attitude to God, living according to the course of this world, governed by the prince of the power of the air, that's the sort of creature he is, dead in trespasses and sins, a creature of lusts, lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desire of the flesh and of the mind. Now, there is no more appalling description possible than that. You can't imagine a worse state than that. Does such a creature deserve anything? Has such a creature any right at all in the presence of God? Can he come forward with a plea or with a demand? Surely the whole point of the apostle is to say that such a creature deserves nothing at the hands of God but retribution. And then, you see, he works out his great contrast, but God, which we've already considered in detail. And the whole purpose of that, surely, is to exalt the grace and the mercy of God. And is to show that where men deserve nothing at all, God not only gives him, and gives him liberally, but showers upon him the exceeding riches of his grace. Now that, therefore, I say, is the first principle. That we are Christians solely and entirely and only because of the grace of God. Now I've referred to that fifth verse and to me it's extremely important in this whole argument. You notice the way the apostle inserted it there, slipped it in as it were, insinuated it. Why? Well, you notice the context. He says that it was even when we were dead in sins that God hath quickened us. Now he gets it in at once, by grace he has saved. And if you don't see it at that point, you'll see it at no point. You see, what he's been saying is this. We were dead. That means without any life at all. Without any ability, therefore. Dead. 
And the first thing that was necessary was that we should be given life, that we should be quickened. And he says, that's the very thing that God has done to you. And therefore, he says, can't you see it? It's by grace you are saved. If you can't see it at this point, when you were dead and then it happened, well, how can you see it anywhere? So he puts it in at that particular point, obviously for that reason. It's the only conclusion one can draw. That creatures who are spiritually dead are now alive. How has it happened? Can a dead man raise himself? It's impossible. Well, there's only one answer. By grace he has saved. Well, here it is again, I say once more. And therefore we uh, come to this inevitable conclusion. That we are Christians at this moment. Only and entirely by the grace of God. Oh, the apostle was never tired of saying this. What else could he say? as he looked back at that blaspheming Saul of Tarsus who hated Christ and the Christian church and did his best to exterminate Christianity, breathing out his threatenings and slaughter, as he looked back at that and then looked at himself as he was, what could he say but this? I am what I am by the grace of God. And I must confess, it passes my comprehension To understand how any Christian looking at himself or herself can say anything else. If when you get on your knees before God, you don't realize that you're a debtor to mercy alone. Well, I confess I don't understand you. There is something tragically defective, either in your sense of sin or in your realization of the greatness of God's love. Well, this is the running theme of the New Testament. It is the reason why the saints of the centuries have always praised the Lord Jesus Christ. They see that when they were utterly hopeless, indeed dead, and vile and foul, hateful and hating one another, as Paul puts it in writing to Titus, then God looked upon us. It was while we were yet sinners, more. It was while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. At enmity, aliens in our minds, utterly opposed. Surely, we must see that it is by grace and by grace alone that we are Christians. It is utterly undeserved. It is only as the result of the goodness of God. But let us go on to the second proposition. The second proposition, as I've indicated, the Apostle puts in a negative form. And he puts it like this. The fact that we are Christians gives us no grounds whatsoever for boasting. You see, that's the negative of the first proposition. The first is that we are Christians solely and entirely as the result of the grace of God. Well, therefore, secondly, we must say that the fact that we are Christians gives us no grounds whatsoever for boasting. Now, the Apostle puts that in two statements. The first is that not of yourselves. But he isn't content with that. He must put it still more explicitly in these words. Lest any man should boast. 
Now, what two important statements those are. Surely nothing could be stronger than this. Not of yourselves, lest any men should boast. Now, let me put this quite simply and directly. This must always be the crucial test of our view of salvation and of what makes ourselves Christians. Now, let's, uh, let's examine ourselves together for a moment. What is your idea of yourself as a Christian? What's made you a Christian? How have you become a Christian? What's it depend upon? What's the background? What's the reason? That's, that's the crucial question. And according to the Apostle, this is the vital test. Does your idea as to how you've become a Christian give you any grounds whatsoever for being proud of yourself? For boasting? Does it in any way reflect credit upon you? If it does, according to this statement, and I don't hesitate to say it, you are not a Christian. Not of yourselves, lest any men should boast. Now, I read to you that great statement from the third chapter of the epistle to the Romans, because there the apostle puts it still more plainly if necessary. He asks his question. Here he says is God's way of salvation. And then he says, where is boasting then? And he answers by saying, it is excluded. There is no boasting here. If there is anything left in us of which we feel we can boast in the presence of God, it's a denial of Christianity. Not of yourselves. Lest any man should boast. Where is boasting? It is excluded. It's put out through the door and the door locked on it. There is no room for it here at all. Now, it's not surprising that the Apostle Paul is so fond of putting it in that particular way. Because before his conversion, before he became a Christian, he knew a great deal about boasting. There was never a more self-satisfied person or a self-assured person than Saul of Tarsus. He was proud of himself in every respect. Proud of his nationality proud of the particular tribe into which he'd been born in Israel, proud of the fact that he had been brought up as a Pharisee and had sat at the feet of Gamaliel, proud of his religion, proud of his morality, proud of his knowledge. He tells us all about it. In the third chapter of the epistle to the Ephesians, he boasted. He stood up and he said, as it were, who can challenge this? Here I am, a good and a moral and a religious man. Look at me in my religious duties. Look at me in my life. Look at me in every respect. I've given myself to this godly, holy living, and I'm satisfying God. That was his attitude. He was bursting. He felt that he was such a man, and had lived in such a way that he could be proud of it. It's one of his great words. 
And he came to see that one of the biggest differences that becoming Christian made to him was the role that was put out. That's why he uses rather strong language, and language that some people would regard almost as impolite. Looking back on all that in which he had boasted so much, he says it's done, manure. He's not content to say that it was wrong, it's vile, it's filthy, it's foul. Boasting excluded. But you see, the apostle knows the danger at this point so well that he doesn't content himself with a general statement. He raises two particular respects in which we are most liable to boast. And the first of all is this question of works. By grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's always in connection with works that we're most liable to boast. It's at that point the devil tempts us all most in a most subtle manner. Works. That was why the Pharisees were the greatest enemies of Jesus Christ. Not because they were mere talkers, but because they really did things. When that Pharisee says, I fast twice in the week, he was speaking the truth. When he said, a tenth of my goods I give to the, poor, to the poor, it was absolutely accurate. The Pharisees were not mere talkers, they really did it. And it was because they did it, they so resented the preaching of the Son of God and were most responsible for his crucifixion. Is it going too far to say that it's always more difficult to convert a good person than a bad one? I think the history of the church proves that. The greatest opponents of evangelical religion have always been good and religious people. Some of the most cruel persecutors in the history of the church have always belonged to this class. The saints have always suffered most acutely at the hands of good moral religious people. Why? Well, because of works. You see, the evangelical gospel always denounces works and pride of works and boasting about works, and they can't stand it. Their whole position has been built upon that. It's because of what they are and what they've done and what they've always been doing. This is their whole position. If you take that from them, they've got nothing, and they hate it, and they'll fight for it to the last ditch. The gospel makes paupers of us all. It condemns us, everyone. It strips us and makes us all naked. There is no difference, Paul's argument is everywhere. There is no difference between that Gentile that's outside the pale and the religious due in the sight of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. So works must go out. They mustn't be boasted of, but we tend to boast of them. Our good living, our good deeds, our religious observances, our attendance at services, and particularly if we do so early in the morning and so on, these are the things, our religious life, these make us Christian. That is the argument. But the apostle exposes that and denounces that, and he does it very simply in this way. He says to talk about works is to go back under the law. 
If you think, he says, that it is your good life that makes you a Christian, well, then you're putting yourself back under the law. But that's a futile thing to do, he says, for this reason. If you go and put yourself back under the law, you're condemning yourself. For by the deeds of the law shall no man be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. If you want to try and justify by yourself by your life and by your works, well, my dear friend, you are walking straight to condemnation because the best works of men are not good enough in the sight of God. The law has condemned all. All have sinned and have come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. So don't be foolish, says Paul. Don't turn away from grace. You're turning to condemnation. No man's works will ever be sufficient to justify him in the sight of God. How foolish, therefore, to go back into works. But not only that, he says in the 10th verse, it's to put things the wrong way around. Such people think that by their good works, they make themselves Christians. Whereas Paul says it's exactly the other way around. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God before hath appointed that we should walk in them. Now isn't this a tragedy? People think if I only do this and I don't do that and I live a good life and I go out and help others by these good works, I will become a Christian, I will make myself a Christian. Dear me, says Paul, what blindness. The way to look at good works is this. God makes us Christians in order that we may do good works. Not good works leading to Christianity, but Christianity leading to good works. It's the exact opposite. And therefore there is nothing that that can be such a condemnation and contradiction of the true Christian position as this tendency to burst of works and to think that because we are what we are and are doing what we are doing, that we are making ourselves Christian. No, no. God makes Christians and then they go on to do their good works. The exact opposite. And of course, the moment we are going back to good works, we are going back to this question of bursting again. If I am a Christian because of the life I've lived or because of the good I've done, well, very well, I've done it and I've got something to be proud of. Bursting has come back again. But it mustn't. Bursting is excluded. Where is bursting? It is excluded. By what law? By the law of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Very well, then, we see that works must go out. We mustn't boast of our works. If you and I at this moment are in any way conscious of our goodness, Or if we are relying upon anything that we've done, we are denying the grace of God. It's the opposite of Christianity. But alas, it isn't only works that tends to insinuate itself. There's something else. Faith. Faith tends to come in and to make us boast. Now there's a great argument about this seventh verse. About this eighth verse, as you know. For by grace are ye saved through faith. And that, 
not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Now the great question is, what does the that refer to? And there are two schools of opinion. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that faith, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. That's one. But according to the other view, the that doesn't refer to the faith, but to the grace at the beginning of the sentence. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that disposition of grace, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Is it possible to settle the dispute? It is not. It's not a question of grammar, it's not a question of language. You've got the great authorities divided into the two schools, and it's most interesting and almost amusing to notice the sides to which they belong. For instance, if I were to ask you what was the view of John Calvin on this, I'm sure you'd all say at once that Calvin said that the, that refers to faith and not to grace. But actually, Calvin said the exact opposite. He said it refers to grace and not to faith. It's a question that cannot be decided. And there is a sense, of course, in which it really doesn't matter at all. Because it comes to much the same thing in the end. In other words, what is important for us is to avoid turning faith into works. And at that point, there is no difficulty at all about the doctrine. But there are many people who do that. They turn their own faith into a kind of works. Indeed, there is quite a popular evangelistic teaching at the present time that puts it like this. They say the difference the New Testament makes can be put in this form. In the Old Testament, God looked at the people and said, Well, now, here's my law, here are the Ten Commandments, keep them and I will forgive you and you will be saved. But they say, it isn't that now. God has put all that on one side. There is no longer any law. God simply says to us, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and if you do, you'll save yourself. And they say, by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, a man saves himself. But that, you see, is to turn faith into works. If that is so, it is our action that saves us. But the Apostle says, not of yourselves. Whether this, that refers to grace or to faith, it doesn't matter. You are saved, says Paul, by grace, that not of yourselves. But if it's my belief that saves me, I have saved myself. But Paul says, it's not of yourself. So that I must never speak of my faith in a way that makes it of myself. Not only that, if it's, if I become a Christian in that way, again, surely it gives me some grounds for boasting. But Paul says, not of works, lest any man should boast. My boasting must be entirely excluded. Very well then, as I think of faith, we must be careful to put it in this form. Faith is not the cause of salvation. Christ is the cause of salvation. The grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ is the cause of salvation. And I must never speak in such a way as to represent faith as the cause of my salvation. 
What is faith then? Well, faith is but the instrument through which it comes to me. By grace are he saved through faith. Faith is the channel. It's the instrument through which this salvation, which is of the grace of God, comes to me. I am saved by grace through faith. It is just the medium through which the grace of God bringing salvation to me enters into my life. And therefore I say that we must be always extremely careful never to say that it is our believing that saves us. Belief does not save. Faith does not save. Christ saves. Christ and his finished work. Not my belief, not my faith, not my understanding. Nothing that I do. Not of yourselves. Bursting is excluded by grace through faith. And surely the whole point of the first three verses of this chapter, I say again, is to show that no other position is at all possible. How can a man who is dead in trespasses and sins save himself? How can a man who is an enemy and alienated in his mind, whose heart is at enmity against God, for that is what I'm told about the natural man, how can such a man do anything that's meritorious? It's impossible. The first thing that happens to us, the Apostle has told us in verses 4 to 7, is that we have been quickened together with Christ. New life has been put into us. Why? Well, because without life we can do nothing. The first thing the sinner needs is life. He can't ask for life. He's dead. God gives him life and he proves that he's got it by believing the gospel. Quickening is the first step. It's the first thing that happens. I don't ask to be quickened. If I asked to be quickened, I wouldn't need to be quickened. I don't already have life. But I'm dead and I'm an enemy. And I'm opposed. And I don't understand and I hate. But God gives me life. He has quickened me together with Christ. Therefore I say that boasting is entirely excluded. Boasting of works, boasting even of faith. They must be put out. It is altogether of grace. And that brings me to the last principle which I just summarize in this way. Our being Christians, therefore, is entirely the result of God's work. You know, my friends, the real trouble with us is that our conception of what it is that makes us Christian is so low, it's so poor. It's our failure to realize the greatness of being a Christian. What is it? Well, listen to Paul. We are his workmanship. It's God who's done something. It's God who's working. We are his workmanship. Not our works, his works. So I say again, it isn't our good life and all our efforts and hoping to be a Christian at the end that makes us Christians. But let me go further. It isn't our decision that makes us Christians either. That's our work. Decision does come into it, but it isn't our decision that makes us Christians. Paul says it's his workmanship. And thus you see our loose thinking and our loose speaking. Oh, how grievously does it misrepresent Christianity. 
I remember a very good man. Yes, a good Christian man. His way of giving his testimony was always this. He used to say, I decided for Christ 30 years ago, and I've never regretted it. That was his way of putting it. I decided for Christ 30 years ago, and I've never regretted it. That's not Paul's way of describing becoming Christian. We are his workmanship. That's the emphasis. Not something I've gone in for, not something I've decided, something that God has done to me. He might then have put it like this, 30 years ago I was dead in trespasses and sins, but God began to do something to me. I became aware of God dealing with me. I felt God smashing me. I felt the hands of God remaking me. That's Paul's way of putting it. Not I decided. I went in for Christianity. I decided to follow Christ. Not at all. That comes in, but that's later. We are his workmanship. A Christian is something that's been brought into being by God. And you notice the kind of work it is, according to Paul, it's nothing less than a creation, created in Christ Jesus, unto good works. Now the apostle is very fond of saying this, listen to him saying it to the Philippians. Being confident of this very thing, he says that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. God! He's begun a good work in you. It's God's work. He came when you were dead and he quickened you. He put life into you. That's what makes you Christian. Not your good works. Not your decision. No, no. What God decided about you. And put it into practice. And it's here I see how appallingly short our ideas of what a Christian is come of the biblical conception. A Christian is a new creation. He isn't another man, an old man who's been improved somewhat. He's a new man, created in Christ Jesus. He's been put into Christ and the life of Christ has come into him. We are partakers of the divine nature, says the Apostle Peter, you remember, in his second epistle and the first chapter and the fourth verse. Partakers of the divine nature. What's a Christian? A good man? A moral man? A man who believes certain things? Oh, infinitely more. He's a new man. The life of God has come into his soul. Created in Christ. God's workmanship. Have you realized that that is what makes you a Christian? It isn't attending a place of worship. It isn't doing certain duties. These things are all excellent. But these will never make us Christians. They can make us Pharisees. It's God who makes Christians. And he does it in this way. He created everything out of nothing at the beginning. And he comes to man and he makes him anew. And gives him a new nature. Makes a new man of him. He's a new creation. Nothing less. And if you're interested in work, says Paul... 
I'll tell you the sort of works that God is interested in. It's not the miserable works that you can do as a creature in sin by nature. It's a new kind of work created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. What's he mean? He means this. Our trouble is not only that our notion of Christianity is inadequate, our notion of good works is still more inaccurate. Put down on paper these good works that people think are good enough to make them Christian. Get them to put them all down on paper. All these things on which they are relying. Put them on paper and then take them to God and say, this is what I've done. The thing is laughable. It's monstrous. You just look at what they are doing. That and Those are not the good works that God is interested in. What are God's good works? Well, the Sermon on the Mount. The life of Jesus Christ. Those are God's good works. Not just a little negative goodness and morality. Not perhaps doing an occasional kindness and being very conscious of it. No, no, disinterested love. Let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Who though he was equal with God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and humbled himself, and took unto him the likeness of men, and came in the fashion of a servant, and humbled himself even to the death of the cross, giving himself for others without counting the cost. Those are God's good works. Loving God with all the heart and soul and mind and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves, not doing him an occasional good turn, but loving him as yourself, forgetting yourself in your concern for him. Those are God's good works, and these are the works that he's created us for. You see, a Christian, according to this definition, is one who has been made anew after the image and the pattern of the Son of God himself. The Apostle puts it here in the fourth chapter of this Ephesian epistle in verse 24. Listen to him. And in that he put on the new men which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Not a little bit of goodness, but true holiness. Holiness of the truth and utter absolute righteousness. And already in the first chapter, Paul has put it like this to us, you remember, in the fifth verse. The fourth verse, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. In writing to the Romans, he puts it like this, whom he hath predestinated them, he hath also called, and whom he hath called, them he hath also justified. Whom he did foreknow, he did it, he says, he did also predestine it to be conformed to the image of his son. What's a Christian? Just a good man? Somebody who's just a little bit better than somebody else? Not at all. Like Christ. Conformed to the image of God's son? How can a man who's dead in trespasses and sins raise himself to that? It's impossible. By grace you are saved. Not of yourselves. No boasting. 
No man can come there. No man can raise himself. No man can have ever elevate himself to this. It's God's work. And God's work alone. A Christian is one who is meant to be like Christ. He's got the life of Christ within him. I live yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. What is Christianity? It's this. Christ in you, the hope of glory, made after the image of God's own Son. Thank God it is of grace. If it were not of grace, we'd all be hopeless, we'd all be undone, and we'd all be condemned. But because it is by grace, because it is God's work, because I am God's workmanship, I know that in spite of myself, in spite of the sin that yet remains within me, I shall be made perfect. If it were left to me or left to any one of you, there'd be no hope at all. Who are we to face the world and the flesh and the devil? But thank God it is by grace. We are his workmanship. We're in his hands. And if he started working in you, he'll go on with it until it's completed. If you won't be pleaded, if you won't be drawn by the gospel, he'll chastise you. He'll knock those corners off you. He'll chisel them away. If he's got you in his plan, if he's making you after the image of Christ, he'll go on with it. Until every spot and wrinkle and every such thing shall have gone forever. And we shall stand in the presence of God, faultless and blameless, and with exceeding joy. Thank God it's not of works. Thank God it's not my belief. Thank God there is nothing of which I can boast. God forbid that I should glory. Save in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified unto me, and I unto the world. By grace, through faith. Amen.